Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the true crime podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and I have two, count them, two special guests with me for this very good interview episode. I have Chris Clark with me and Beth and Truman. Welcome both. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for the invitation, Stuart. No worries. It's a pleasure to have you on. The reason for that is those who are watching this on video, you've got a book that came out back end of last year, November time, I believe it was, called The New mm-hmm. Millennium Serial Killer. This focuses on Christopher Halliwell, a case I covered in my season eight finale a few weeks back. So it's it's fresh in my mind, which is a very positive thing. Before we get to the book, what I want to do is just, in case my listeners aren't aware of one or either of you let's just have a bit of background for you both if we could start with you chris i was reading some of your biography i suppose on the dust jacket of the new book and i found it quite interesting do you want to tell me about your career in uh, norfolk constabulary uh yes Stuart. I, I joined in march 1966 back in the heartbeat days and um two years later we actually um had the unit beat policing, which brought in the collator, which was the first intelligence package for the whole country. The collator's job was to analyse and disseminate information coming on from beat constables and other sources and placed onto card index systems. And I was fortunate enough to start the system off in April 1968. Um, I became the deputy collator, as well as my other footbeat and and other general police duties for 20 years and at the end of 20 years i was actually the local intelligence officer for west norfolk for four years from 1988 to 1991 we then became computerized in 1990 i also did other various jobs including royalty protection for 12 years at sandringham and i was involved in a number of major incident rooms under the old card index system, which you've probably seen um, with the carousel index system, 
which again, it became computerized around about 1988 to the Holmes first computer, which I was trained on. So that's enough about me. <laughs> I've got to ask you for a little bit more. So how about that before we get to Bethan? It said that you were raised at various RAF stations. Do you think that impacted the job you sort of ended up going into? Well, I, th I think probably thanks to my dad. I, I actually wrote a book um, in 2012, biography of dad's 25-year career in the Royal Air Force. Oh. And it, um, it basically, Tom, my dad, he started off as a signals officer in France uh, just before the um, the bleach sig occurred in 1940 when the Germans kicked everyone out. And smarting from that, he trained to be an air gunner, which he was during the rest of the Second World War, um, flying Sunderland flying boats and, and various light bombers as a tail-end Charlie. And after the war, he retrained his signals and became a flight lieutenant signals officer. He actually flew um, His Majesty King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and the future Queen and Prince Philip. So I think I probably inherited that side of it um, the, from the intelligence because Dad finished up at RF Watton on the spy flights, which um, was on the comet, and their job was to fly over Soviet uh, occupied areas in the Cold War and the SAM missiles would lock in on them and that then gave the Royal Air Force Comet chaps in the back, the boffins, the coordinates to feed back to GCHQ uh, which said where, where their installations and radar setup was because at the time in 1958 there was no human intelligence in Russia or occupied nations um, so yeah they were called spy flights so I think that's probably where it came from. Wow. Don't know what it is about army and stuff. My parents are both in the army, not the RAF, but stuff like that fascinates me. It must have been interesting to write about his career. Yes, yes, it was. Um, unfortunately, I had to do it the hard way because he's a very modest man. So most of my stuff came from the National Archives, including the time he was shot down over occupied Italy in wow. 1944. He spent seven weeks hidden by the Italians under the noses of the German occupies until the Allies broke through. So, yeah, he had a very, very interesting career. Jesus. World I War think II. you do tend to find, though, people of that era and in that industry, you know, working in the forces, do tend to be quite humble and keep things reasonably quiet. We were trying to do some family history for my children and my grandparents were both in the RAF and trying to get information out of them they just give you the bare bones and you really want more but they're not it's not showy offy is it chris it's it's just well we did our job kind of thing and but you want to yeah. be like but it's amazing what you did exactly my dad was an ace bullshitter um <laughs> when i asked him about our family he said we were related to the north the native north red indians and I had visions that if I had to put the family tree together, I had to go over and read totem poles in Canada. But the truth was, my dad was of Scottish parentage. He was born in Toronto in Canada. He came over as a young a boy to uh, Scotland, where he settled in Galashiels, and then later in Newcastle, where he, um, he did his schooling. He was an apprentice printer, and his father was a printer, travelling salesman. 
And dad actually joined the Royal Air Force about nine months before World War II started. So he was actually a volunteer. Um, but he, he kept everything very, very close to his chest. I found a bane at once and he told me he'd taken it off a guard and had to slit his throat. Um, you know, that's the sort of bloke he was. So, uh, <laughs> I think it's a generational thing, stiff upper lip, and we're just doing his job. We don't have to talk about it. We've done nothing grandiose. It's just what was expected of us. I think it's, mm-hmm. but like yeah. you say, Bethan, it's amazing what they've done. So, Bethan, were you in the army? <laughs> I was not. No. <laughs> just about did some rainbows and brownie guides, literally my level. <laughs> That's good. So, the voice there is Bethan Truman. A lot of my listeners may recognize your voice, they may know the name, co host of Seeing Red with Mark which uh, began in August 2018. Yes, we've been been going a little while now. Has that gone through like the blink of an eye or has it dragged? It's a blink of an eye. Absolutely. Absolutely crazy. It's it's really, really mad. Um, I'm sure if, I, if any of your listeners have heard of our show, they'd expect me to say something mean about Mark, but <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. He's not here to defend himself. <laughs> How do you find after... We're going on five years this year. Is the passion still there? What motivates you to put out these cases every week? Definitely still there. And I think if we had decided to do a podcast in um, an area that we weren't particularly passionate about to begin with, it wouldn't have lasted this long. These are stories and cases and victims that we feel so passionate about keeping remembered And that's where we realised that we had this shared passion and this shared interest was because we would sit there and we'd talk about things because we didn't want those people to be forgotten or because we'd want to try and try and piece together something that was such a mystery. And good for the show and good for your show, but frustratingly, as human nature, there will always be more crimes to discuss and there will always be more elements of true crime to talk about. So it's it's always we're always able to find something new or something different to talk about. It's sad, really, because I remember when I started, people said, you're just doing British cases. Aren't you going to run out? And I'm like, sadly, no. No chance, yeah. All you have to do is turn on the news and there's been another murder. There's been another murder somewhere around. There's so many that go under the radar as well that no one's Mm -hmm. ever even heard of. It's so sad. Have you heard of the um, show Murder Mile? with yes yeah with mike Mike. so he literally looks at a one mile square radius like how crazy is that and all of his cases come from within that one mile radius doesn't he walk it as well i swear yeah yeah (laughs) and he did walking tours for a while as well so yeah, yeah even in that one small area you can continue a show for years and years and years so and yeah. absolutely it is terrifying but with the intros done then let's get on to the main course as it were we've got the new millennium serial killer the new book by bethan and chris focusing on christopher hallowell so let's rewind it before the books come out chris why christopher hallowell well um i'd finished peter sockliffe and robert black and around about 2014 I became aware, even though I wasn't aware in 2012, of Christopher Halliwell. And I looked at him. His itinerant work took him all over the country. And he had an interest in areas of outstanding booty, freshwater fishing, and narrowboat canal. And 
on those parameters, I started researching unsolved murders, and I accumulated about 150 female murders around the country unsolved, and then systematically went through them, looking for the parameters I've just mentioned. Um, also, Halliwell was forensically aware. In many cases, the bodies were stripped. In the case of Becky, he dismembered her. Her head and shoulders and other bones have never been found. In Sean's case, he just brutally murdered her and threw her down a ravine. So two very distinct murders. And it appeared to me that if he had the time and energy, he was carefully hiding the bodies by burying them or in water. And in cases, other cases where he was disturbed, he was just dumping them. So, so um, th those were the sort of start, starting points. Plus, both Becky and uh, Sean were taken across the Wiltshire County boundary, Becky into South Gloucestershire in Eastleach, where she was buried in a scraped, shallow grave. And in Sean's case, he originally took her to Savernake Forest on the borders of Berkshire, and then realised there was a hue and cry, reversed ferret and took her up to South Oxfordshire near the White Horse Hill and just threw her bodily out of his vehicle. Um, so so that, that sort of painted the picture. The one thing I took away, not only from the book, which covers, is it 27 potential links? Is that how many was was in the book? Have I got the number right? 27. Yes, Um we, I think we originally had 28 in our original book. Um, yeah. um, we, we, we actually had a, a case in Scotland that we felt was very viable, but in the meantime, it would appear, and we're still waiting for the trial, that mm -hmm. Scotland uh, police have made arrests in connection with that case. Yeah, a young girl called Caroline. So her case okay. then came out of the, re rebrand, the reprint and the republishing. Okay. So yeah, what I took away from it was... The two murders that Halliwell was convicted of, Sean and Becky, as you've mentioned, and you point to it in here, there's a lot of inconsistencies, specifically with Becky. You've got the depth of the grave, which he said was five feet, when in reality it was only a couple of inches, right? He couldn't remember the exact year when he'd murdered her. He gave a three-year gap, I believe. Indicates to me, and, and the, it's rare that you jump straight to murder of that brutality. So it makes sense why there's potentially other ones in there. At what point did you join forces with Chris Bethan? So Chris approached me beginning of 2016. No, that would be that would be 20... ridiculous because that was far too long. Um, about 2020, beginning of 2020, am I right, Chris? No, I think about 2018, 19. 19, maybe. So it was once yeah. we had been doing Seeing Red for a little while. Yeah. Um, and Chris approached me sort of knowing my background as true crime podcaster so writing in in sort of writing the scripts but also knowing that I had some sort of local links and then he got in touch with me to ask me if I wanted to work on this project with him what links are you referring to there um, so I don't think that Chris would have realised. Um, he kind of just spoke to me as somebody from the area, so somebody who potentially could get closer to the scene and that sort of thing. Um, he, I don't think he quite realised that there's more than just that local link for me. So I have a family member who actually grew up with his family 
and Halliwell and his wife and children really good friends. So quite often Halliwell and his wife would babysit for this family member and his sibling. And then also, you know, the parents were friends, they would drink together. Halliwell was a part of his life. Um, I worked with one of Sean's siblings at the time of Sean going missing. Um, I don't go into too much detail about that because Sean's family have made it quite clear that they don't want to be involved in anything, really. They don't particularly want to talk to the media, be a part of anything. When I said about the book or the case, they kind of said, we're not interested. So I don't talk too much about that, but I had a real connection. Um, We're currently just close to sort of the anniversary, the anniversary of Sean disappearance recently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys have the same, but on Facebook, it brings up memories and it brings up memory, a memory every year of the post I was putting up saying, I reckon Sean will just be coming home soon. Like, I'm really sorry that she's not back yet, but you know, her phone's probably died. She's going to come home soon. Like we'd all posted things saying, be safe. You know, we don't know what's going on. And then obviously the absolutely horrific news then broke that she'd been found. Um, I have friends who were neighbours of Halliwell at different times. My sisters went to school with Halliwell's children. Um, At one point, one of my sisters lived close to the pond where Halliwell dumped a lot of his things. So there's so many connections. And I do think you find that in small places, in small towns and counties, you do have lots of people who know each other and that is going to happen. But yeah, I, I think Chris had kind of just approached me on this quite quite a broad reasoning and then more and more just kept coming out of the woodwork and and kind of bringing this book together and yeah there's a lot of a lot of connections so you mentioned that there was originally 28 cases one of them is going through the legal process at the moment with a suspect how long did it take to get to that number chris was it you were looking at these unsolved cases and thought that could be one did you have to whittle it down at all Yes, I, I whittled it down from 150, the original oh, wow. tally I looked at. <clears throat> uh, predominantly, they were sex workers because that seemed to be his area of gratification. Um, but also the interesting thing was he said in prison, in Dartmoor Prison, around about 1986 to his cellmate, how many do you have to have to be a serial killer? And this seemed to be an extraordinary statement for a man who'd gone into prison for antique burglaries mm. and and there was no history whatsoever of him other than for theft and burglary so uh, that that's where my um, my timeline started and i came up with two cases in 1983 and 84 okay so realistically then i know w- with a book being a certain length for example there's only so many you could fit in there otherwise it'd be the size of you know lord of the rings let's say are there others that weren't included in the book then that potentially you still think may be linked to him? The problem is there are 12 sketches that Christopher Halliwell made, pencil sketches, which were seized when he was originally arrested. They are clearly areas of outstanding natural beauty, which was one of the things which drove him. We have 12 victims unknown because they are missing people. And the the, the hall around Ramsbury Pond were 60 items of women's clothing, two of which have been identified, a boot from Sean O'Callaghan and a cardigan from Becky. So the inference is there are 58 other victims. 
So that that's the scale. It's a bit like Peter Sockliffe, who's originally tally, was 13 murders in seven attempts. And and I made out a case that he had 30 more victims on top of that. So that that's what we're looking at. The problem is we don't have the geo-profiling of Christopher Halliwell. It's safely locked under Wiltshire Police's archives. It's not in public knowledge. What we do know is he lived in Liverpool area. He lived in the Northamptonshire area. He also had access to the Yorkshire area as well as the West Country. But we're just scratching at the surface. What do you make of... Because he was put under surveillance, Halliwell, but there was a period, I think it was only about an hour, from when he was placed under surveillance by Stephen Fulcher. And it was during that random hour that I believe he moved Sean's body yeah. while, while he wasn't being watched. Do you think, in reality, if he would have killed more than two, which, based on what the book says, I think it's unquestionable, why do you think he focused on those two? And also, a, sort of a caveat to that question is, why do you think he volunteered the information about Becky after he was arrested for Sean's potential murder? Do you want to come in, Bethan? Yeah, I mean, I think something happened whereby he felt some sort of connection to Steve Fulcher. I think that there was just some sort of moment. You kind of like in any other situation, say like a moment of madness where something just came over him and he just wanted to to tell Steve Fulcher potentially in a braggy sort of way, you know, look what I've done, look what I can do. Um I just, I personally cannot get my head around why he chose to then give Steve Fulcher another one. It just doesn't, I just cannot think of any proper reason, but then I suppose we're not dealing with somebody who's mentally sane. So I just don't know. And I think he didn't know who he was choosing when he took them to Becky's body. That was somewhere that he vaguely could take them to. Like you mentioned before, Stuart, he didn't get the depth right. He didn't know the year for definite if that was if he had only killed those two people you would remember even if you don't remember your victim's name or your victim's job role or anything about them you'd at least remember the year that you like surely the the time you killed that person apparently the first person and up until that point the only other person you'd ever killed surely you'd remember more than that i don't think he chose to give Steve Fulcher, Becky, he just, for some reason, wanted to give him something. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my thoughts are, obviously, from the interview interrogation techniques, um, you have to you have to have a rapport with your, your person mm-hmm. that you're interviewing yeah. and make them into a human being. The last thing you do is alienate them because they just shut up because what you need is information from them. And it's, to me... Steve had that magic technique mm-hmm. of, of putting Halliwell at ease and making him feel he wasn't an evil person. He shared cigarettes with him. He, he stuck up uh, a conversation and uh, he got inside Halliwell's head and had Halliwell responded for that short time. And and that that is part of uh, being a detective, the skill of it. And and this is what's lost to them in the main nowadays, that uh, Police officers don't have that uh, that gift. It's something you have to develop. You know, it's not something you can read in a textbook. The story will continue after these quick messages. 
And now, back to the story. Did you have many conversations with Steve whilst researching this book? Were you in contact with him? Uh, I've been in contact with Steve through email uh, because most of the time he's in Somalia. Um, Yeah, uh, basically from the word go. And he responded very, very easily because he found someone who was basically on his side trying to progress unsolved cases he felt very strongly he didn't have the names the names were supplied by myself and bethan but he's gone along with us hasn't he bethan yeah he's been really on board and really positive in what we've been doing and when we were writing and we'd speak to him obviously as you can see from the book he's he's very kindly written the forward for the book for us and very keen to see this to fruition to make sure I read his book and really understand the background of what he went through and what he did Mm. um, to get to the points where there were convictions for these two victims and also everything that we can really trust his gut instinct as to why he believes there's more victims. The the other thing, Stuart, it was very political. Mm. Um, He was singled out, but the, the gold, um, the gold command of Wiltshire Police, including the Chief Constable, hung him out to dry because they wanted to distance himself when Becky's dad raised a complaint about it. So Steve was the full guy, but he had the full backing of his gold team. And the book, the gold book, which they used as their master diary, suddenly disappeared during the inquiry and only resurfaced much later. Um and and this is the problem. Um, they, the the senior officers, uh, most of them are up there because they've jumped over other officers' backs to get where they were. In Steve Fulcher's case, he could quite honestly have gone all the way up the ladder to chief constable, and he would have been a bloody good one mm-hmm. because he was a he he was a bit like John Stalker and Keith Halliwell. He was prepared to stick his neck out and go back to old-fashioned coppering to get a result. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, reading about the controversy around him and this whole breaching pace thing when he spoke to Halliwell. I just kind of think it just doesn't sit right, does it really? It was really fascinating for me because not being from a policing background and whilst interested in true crime, I didn't know the ins and outs of pace. And we wanted to put the chapter together that would go into detail about this and where he can be seen to have bent the rules or broken the rules or crossed a line and potentially where you could then use that evidence in the opposite way and say that it was the opposite. And for me, researching and then trying to put together this chapter that I could understand and hopefully a list a reader could read and understand um it was really tricky because obviously for Chris he's got that background he knows what he's talking about for Steve he had that background he's got the trait I was kind of coming at it from a very unknown point of view and that was one of the chapters for me that I kept kind of like just reading and reading and reading and then go back to and then how can I put this into just normal language that Mm. a normal person can understand. And even then there's so many gray areas. You can understand how he had to make that decision and how difficult that must've been as an, as an officer to do that. Yeah. Um, Basically Pace was brought in in 1984 
because of corrupt police officers fitting up innocent people in a nutshell. Before that, we had the judge's rules, which was a very eerie, fairy um, set of rules. And in fact, I've written several books and writing on miscarriages of justice. And all the way through, the judge's rules were breached time and time again. So PACE was brought in to tighten that up to allow a suspect to have his rights. In a hardened criminal case, it works the other way. The the um, the potential serial killer, like Halliwell, knows what the rules are and, and plays them to their own advantage. I'm fully backing PACE where a suspect who's no previous convictions and is in a police situation to protect their rights, to access to a lawyer, um, what what food and drink they have to have and how long they can be interviewed with rest periods and all the rest of it. But it, it was abused in the case of Halliwell and his barrister latched onto it. Yeah. I know what you mean as well, Bethan, about trying to read this. It's jargon, isn't it, to us as a layman? It's jargon. Mm-hmm. So you've done well to translate it. What was the process like of writing this book then? So taking a couple of years, let's say, 2018 roughly you started and it's come out last year how did that process work as regarding each of your roles with the writing well um basically i i had a rough working manuscript which i pitched to bethan and then we worked backwards and forwards from there didn't we bethan yeah chris came to me with the real key facts of the cases the the women's names and and that is something i will say from the very beginning was what made me want to do this and made me want to work with Chris on this was you could tell that this wasn't somebody who just wanted to make some money off of publishing a book this wasn't somebody who wanted to get his own name and his own glory this was somebody who could rattle off the names of these women who potentially would be forgotten otherwise who were coming from backgrounds that were you know really deprived or abused or women who just come from nothing and were forgotten potentially and didn't have the community feel that a lot of us are very very lucky to have and family around us and so for me it was it was kind of like oh do I want to do this or do I not and I had to kind of think about from my own personal I'm quite close to this case so do I want to write this and I just thought I can't not this is incredible so yeah Chris just kind of came to me with with the information and then how he wanted the cases to be grouped for example if there were certain elements to chapters and how he wanted it to be put together And then he kind of just gave me free reign to write it in a way that I would potentially present it on a show, how I would feel that a listener would respond and how I thought a reader would want to hear it. And then I'd send it back to him and say, what do you think? And he'd send me back, oh, also this piece of information or this key fact, you need to put this in. Mm -hmm. Um, And Chris was very patient as well because it took so long because I was trying to write this whilst also working my job and doing the podcast. And the first publication of the book came out 20, when was 21. that Chris? 2021. Yeah. September, so, yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of, um, yeah, Mommy. I just had a second, second child. So my first child um, was born during the whole process of, of us trying to write. So that was crazy. And then uh-huh. second daughter was born 
um, a few weeks earlier than I was expecting. So I was kind of sat there finishing off the last drafts with a newborn on my lap, middle of the night <laughs> when she was having a fee. Like it was just crazy. So Chris was really, really patient. And then we went through the publication then 2021. And that was September 2021 that the official release date. And then it was republished then. Just right. what was it? October just no- gone. November the 11th. November just gone. Yeah. 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 So this is the. Well, this is the one with the redacted case, right? That is, yeah. yeah. And okay. a few different, a few changes with the new publishers and new editors with some questions they had. But yeah, there was a lot of me kind of saying to Chris, so tell me more about why, because he had in his, his mind, he'd be like, well, it's definitely this case for this reason. And then I'd kind of have to try and say to him, from a reader's point of view, mm. we need more. What can okay. you give me? What can you give me? And then poor Chris would be sat there going, <laughs> why don't you get it yet? <laughs> <laughs> Not not at all, Bethan, not at all. (laughs) One thing I like about this is where you actively call out to police forces about certain cases. For example, the list of items found in the pond, Mm -hmm. you know, requesting those be made public to potentially help identify other victims on there. I do like that. Have you got any kind of, or what kind of response have you got in relation to those? Has anyone come back to you? Uh, Basically, I, I submitted a freedom of information request for the 12 sketches to be placed in the public domain because clearly Wiltshire Police could not identify those deposition sites. It was refused by Wiltshire Police. I appealed. They refused the appeal. I took it to the Information Commissioner and he stood by the side of Wiltshire Police. So they're still locked away. So there are 12 victims unaccounted for who could be identified if a member of the public recognised the landmark. Basically, um, those sketches were similar to Brady and Hindley's photographs of Saddleworth Moor where they buried their victims. Yeah. And the other thing about Halliwell, he returns to his victims. In uh, the case of Sean, over the four days she was missing and dead, he returned to her on four occasions. And on the one occasion, he pulled her jeans down pulled her tights and knickers down and deliberately ripped the crotch of her tights. Now, that brings a case back to 1984, the second one in our book in Timeline, which is the case of Shelley Morgan. She was found as a skeleton, naked, apart from her tights, which were torn around her ankles. So for me, that is many, many years later using the same technique. We also quite often find, so the local newspaper would run the story of potentially Hallowell's for other other victims because, you know, very local, it's something. That, and they our book has been mentioned numerous times in the media and these calls for, I mean, Becky's mum is still, still campaigning and calling for Wiltshire Police to release more information, to release a list or even just to allow victims' families to come and say, is this one item on the list? Like, you know, the list of the 58 other items from the pond. And so often in these local newspapers and news articles, the Wiltshire Police are just, there is no basis of this. There is no need for us to look into it. We will not be looking any further. This is just speculation. And it's un- quite often they'll be quite scathing and they'll say there's no need for this speculation. And almost say, well, stop going on about it is is the feel of it. And it they don't seem to want to actually put their cards on the table too and prove to us why we're wrong. Because quite often we've said that, haven't we, Chris? Show us yeah. we're wrong and yeah. we will happily say, fine, 
But if you can't answer the simple questions or release simple information, of course, we're going to keep pushing. Yeah, it's basically parallel to the West Yorkshire Police uh, inquiry uh, post Sutcliffe. Basically, West Yorkshire Police shut down every avenue of um, inroad because they didn't want to revisit the sins of their fathers, George Oldfield and Dick Holland. Mm -hmm. Much the same, Wiltshire Police did the same. They didn't want Steve Fulcher put up as a hero because we find some new victims. They wanted to keep it suppressed deliberately. And an insight to that is in 2014, I contacted the Brunel Major Investigation Team in Bristol, which was uh, a joint um, effort between Avon and Somerset, Wiltshire Police and Gloucestershire Police, following an article about Shelley Morgan and one or two other victims I'd suggested in the press. Two officers came all the way from Brunel to interview me in Crook in northeast England, which is a round trip of about 600-plus miles. They were intelligence-led, and they realized there was something in the story. However, um, I contacted Merseyside Police that year with regards to Halliwell and the case of Julie Finley, and I heard nothing back from them at all. And it took till 2018 when the Daily Mirror found a witness who could place Christopher Halliwell just four miles away from where Julie Finley was dumped in a carrot field near Ormskirk in Lancashire, had, had access to a white van the police were looking for. And um, when the Daily Mirror investigated it, they found out that both Merseyside and Wiltshire Police had had this witness information as far back as 2011 and just sat on it. Basically what happened, a, a member of the public was going past at the time Halliwell was trying to finish Julie off. And she yelled out, help me, help me, for God's sake, help me. Um, Halliwell, it clearly was, came to the door, back door of the van and said, it's just an argument between me and my girlfriend. So the witness car carried on. But because of um, he'd been disturbed, that's why Julie was dumped without any mutilation, unlike the other East Lanks Ripper victims, Linda mm -hmm. Donaldson and uh, Maria Requina. Um, so they knew that information in 2011 and just sat on it. This is how cynical they were. They didn't want it reopened because it was already tainted. Okay. So regarding the book then and the cases and, and where you're at with it at the moment, what's next for you both? Is it still something, clearly, Chris, you're very passionate about this yourself as well, Bethan. What's next in the New Millennium serial killer story for you both? Well, for me, I'm still progressing all of the angles, all of the new information that's come in. I mean, just yesterday, um, the 30th anniversary of Carol Clark, who was abducted from Bristol. She was a sex worker. She was found in South Gloucestershire in a canal, Sharpness Canal. The police appealed yesterday on her 30th anniversary. They say they have new information come in. Um, for, for me, um, Carol's case has to be looked at with a potential for Halliwell. And one thing I didn't know is the newspaper article said it was the 200th anniversary of the national waterways. So clearly it would have attracted people like Christopher Halliwell, who was a narrowboat enthusiast, to that sort of venue. So for me, that's yet another trigger point. 
We've also got Trevelyn Evans' case in North Wales, the antique dealer, just recently has been in, in the footsteps of killers um, back in two minutes. Trevelyn was an antique dealer. She left a shop in June 1990 with £600 in her purse, disappeared off the face of the earth. As a result of an article that I had published in North Wales in 2021, one of the original police witnesses came forward to say that on the day in question and the day before, he saw a man fitting Halliwell's description, loitering around the shop, and the day on which Trevelyne went missing, a camper van he had access to just two minutes' walk away from where Trevelyne's shop was. So the inference is that Trevelyne was a fence, or possibly an unwitting one, of Halliwell's stolen antiques. Something went wrong. He murdered her and pocketed the money. The problem is Trevelyne's husband was always under suspicion until his demise. So that that was the sort of the narrow thinking of North Wales Police. But this witness um, was a carpet fitter and actually was working in the area and saw um, he recognised Halliwell from a 1991 wedding photo that I specifically asked to be included in the article because the important thing is, like Robert Black, Christopher Halliwell changed his appearance over the period of time. So the man you see is age 47 in 2011, his mugshot, he appears totally different in the 1990s. Okay. So that that's the progression that I'm trying to go down. And I have actually had people come forward who had narrow escapes with Christopher Halliwell. Yeah, so, since the initial um, book has come out, that we could absolutely add so much more to this. And I'd be keen to look at adding to this with Chris if he wants to in the future with all this new information and new evidence that's come around. And yeah, just really, we feel like we've got such strong cases within so many of this of the chapters in this book anyway, to be able to add even more credence to this. Yeah, I think um, like John Blake did with um, my Yorkshire Rip of the Secret Murders, it was published in 2015 and resurrected in 2020. Mm -hmm. I think if Pen and Sword get the sales figure, they'll probably be interested when the reprint comes around to upgrade, mm -hmm. and that's yeah. when we we can we can put that in Bethan. Mm. Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed for you. I've, as I say, I've got a copy here, which probably I'll give away at some point as a prize so that'll be nice but it's the new millennium serial killer beth and truman and chris clark it's available to buy now i'll drop the link below you can buy that please do give it a good read let us know what you think support seeing red you can support chris where can we find you chris where can you find me yeah oh, do you have oh, a no. website social media oh yeah sorry yeah yes yeah, so i have a website which is www.armchairdetective.org dot uk nice. there's um various things you'll see on there but also um i'm on amazon uh with my published books um unfortunately two of them had, had to be taken off amazon because amazon wanted six pounds a copy and that's God. why bethan and i had to have a republication of the new millennium serial killer right Okay. Well, I'll put the link to your website on as well then, Chris, and a link to the book and obviously Seeing Red. People know about Seeing Red, but I'll Thank still put a link on there. <laughs> You'll still get a link on my little baby show. But it's been a pleasure speaking to you both. Thank you for your time. 
And thank you for having us. Hopefully, we'll speak again soon. Good luck with the book. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye.